From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. So we're talking once again today about the OECD-led international tax deal. But unlike in previous episodes where we heard from the people working on the deal, today we're going to focus on the businesses who will be required to comply with the deal's rules. Our guest today is Alan McLean, the chair of the tax committee at Business at OECD, an independent association that promotes business interests before the global economic body. Before joining Business at OECD, he spent 30 years as an executive vice president at Shell. McLean spoke with Bloomberg Tax and Accounting reporter Lauren Bella about how the business community feels about the latest global tax deal developments. Specifically, they touch on Amount A, a massive multilateral tax treaty that details how large multinational companies' profits will be reallocated. The OECD released a draft text of the treaty in October. They also discuss Amount B, an attempt to simplify transfer pricing methods for some transactions. Overall, McLean says business at OECD is supportive of the deal, but there's concern from companies about the compliance burden of this plan and whether the treaty portion of the deal, which took years to negotiate, will even take effect when all is said and done. Alan and Lauren started off by talking about what companies think of Amount A. I think most businesses continue to to look carefully at the specific language of the convention. But in general, I would say that the businesses look to the two-pillar package as part of a package that is designed to bring stability and certainty uh, to the international tax framework and and therefore support the two-pillar package overall on the whole uh, for those reasons, that it will uh, bring stability and certainty to what is a very complex and uh, uncertain area at the moment. I know that other people I've spoken with about this topic who are in similar positions to you have said that there is some... Um, not division, but that that different industries have different opinions of amount A. In general, can you give me what those divisions might be or how the chips fall in terms of industry and what they might think about this treaty? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't speak for all of them, but I think it's fair to say that those companies or businesses that, that would otherwise be within the scope of digital services taxes are supportive of amount A. Uh, and those companies or businesses that, that might believe that they would not be in scope for digital services taxes um, are less enthusiastic about it. So that's probably the broad distinction. And the reason why the, why companies don't like digital services taxes is because their tax is on turnover uh, and not on profit. And Amount A, at least, is, is a sort of a reallocation of profit uh, between jurisdictions. What are businesses' greatest fears when it comes to this treaty? Uh, I think the biggest question in, in, in businesses' mind at the moment, whether it's a fear or not, is the extent to which it's likely to be taken up. Uh, I mean, obviously, the inclusive framework has made this draft available. It's not a final draft yet. There are still some items to be concluded, although we understand that those can be concluded quite quickly. Uh, but having gone to all of the effort of producing it, um, many people are skeptical about the, the extent of uptake. And obviously, if there isn't broad uptake by uh, all of the members of the inclusive framework, then that raises the risk of uh, of a sort of a, a patchwork of 
of amount A, pillar one in some countries and other DSTs or similar kind of taxes in other countries. So I think as with all aspects of international tax, inconsistency uh, and the potential for double taxation is the biggest fear of companies. Mm-hmm. Is there any concern that if amount A fails, that there will be some effort by individual uh, countries to take parts of this treaty and implement them in their own legislation, and that will uh, result in unilateral measures that will affect companies in this way? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there are some novel uh, aspects to amount A uh, in the, the way that it seeks to reallocate profits to sort of destination uh, or, or customer countries, and that is a departure from the established norms. Uh, so people could take that principle, I guess, and apply it in their own way. Uh, so that's why, you know, we would always say if we're going to have these departures from this from established norms, that we would hope that those departures would be controlled and would be consistent, implemented consistently in all the countries of the inclusive framework. I think let's move on then from amount A to amount B. I know that amount B is viewed relatively favorably in the in the business community, but there are countries who do not want amount A to go forward without amount B and vice versa. And I would assume that there might be some opinion on this. Uh, among your members. Is there a preference or an opinion on this issue of interdependence on parts of Pillar 1? Yeah. Um, so, so first of all, I'd say that, that businesses are, are generally very supportive of amount B uh, because it can create an enormous amount of simplification and, not, and also provide a significant amount of certainty in an area that is not, and it not, doesn't give rise to an enormous amount of tax, but gives rise to an enormous amount of uh, of compliance burden uh, historically, so so that at one fell swoop, if amount B were to be introduced, would give rise to to enormous uh, simplification for for businesses. I think um, the way that amount B is proposed to be introduced would suggest that it could technically be introduced separately from amount A because it's not reliant on the multilateral convention. Uh, just an update to the uh, to the transfer pricing guidelines. And I think all businesses would say this is something that on a standalone basis is so valuable to taxpayers and to tax administrations in terms of cost reduction and waste reduction that we would encourage the OECD and the members of the Inclusive Framework to think about doing that, even if amount A doesn't go forward. But I'll come back to my earlier point that, that we, we, we all see the, the two-pillar package as a package which has some coherence in business OECD have always said that uh, the implementation of the of the package as a whole is desirable because that's what we're told will uh, enable this elimination of, uh, of uncertainty and provide stability in the international tax framework. Like any other rule or guidance or minimum standard, is there a concern that different jurisdictions will interpret this differently or implement it differently? And does the issue of disputes still loom? Do you think that that is still an issue that lingers? 
Yeah, I think there's always that risk, isn't there? I mean, particularly since this is something which will be which will form part of the transfer pricing guidelines, and and we know uh, from from experience that that different countries will interpret those transfer pricing guidelines differently. I mean, we would hope that since the inclusive framework has gone to such length to clarify their views and to create this opportunity for simplification, that that they'll apply it in the same spirit. That this is, you know, for everyone's benefit as a simplification measure. But so I wouldn't say that there's concern that, uh, in terms of a, a significant known concern. But but of course, in the in areas of transfer pricing, there's always the the risk that there will be differences of opinion. But if we can implement them on B, and, we, and if we can use that to eliminate the vast proportion of disputes, if there are some some disputes on the margin, then I think we would all still think that that was a significant step forward. Now, let's move on to pillar two, everyone's favorite topic to talk about now that some rules under the global minimum tax are slated to take effect in Europe and some other countries. I believe we've we've talked about this before, but what uh, is top of mind for your members right now, particularly in their tax departments? What keeps them up at night? Yeah, I think most companies are, are basically busy trying to make sure that they can implement Pillar 2 uh, in their own companies and, and indeed met and prepare for their uh, for their first reporting of the their Pillar 2 liabilities if and to the extent that they have them. I mean, they're going to have to, to have completed all of the calculations to be able to demonstrate uh, to their auditors that either that they've calculated the amount correctly or that there is no amount to be calculated, which is a significant effort. So, so that's everything from you know from training staff, from getting data together, from making changes to systems, and all of that, of course, at a time when the final rules are pretty final. But there are still some areas where we're expecting some guidance to come out. Uh, so that I would say is the the thing that's that's keeping most companies, most tax directors up at the moment is just making sure that they're going to be able to comply. I think uh, you know in the background there is this realization that some of the areas of guidance that have been provided that there is there is some flexibility provided there for some options that countries can take as they implement that, uh, and I think most companies, if the, if I was to say the thing that they're concerned most about is this possibility that there will be slightly ever so slightly different implementations in different countries. And that, of course, is is problematic because it's you know it's, it requires a significant amount of tracing and tracking where this, what different countries are doing, but also because it means it becomes really difficult to create systems approaches that are consistent on a on a global basis if they have to cater for lots of individual specific country needs. Is there an estimate that you've heard of a ballpark of how much the compliance will cost a company in a year? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, that really does vary company by company. But I know, for example, in my own uh, company that I worked with, with uh, up until quite recently, that there's a significant amount of effort being, uh, a massive team uh, has been put together in order to be able to enable compliance with this pillar two. I think, you know, the point which is perhaps more important and that, that most companies would echo is that the cost of compliance is seen by most as being well in excess of any tax which is likely to be due. And I remember the last time we spoke, you said that within systems of a multinational company, 
there are certain systems that don't talk to each other. Yep. And I and can you explain that further? This is something that folks want to hear about because it is something that might be universal for large multinationals. Yeah, I mean, I think in the simplest of terms, most companies, most large companies have a consolidation, a financial consolidation system uh, that relies on, you know, consistent data being input for all of the companies in the group. And that all gets, gets brought together and added together and, and, and adjustments are made. So that's how they have this global overview of their results uh, on a consistent basis across the world. Each of those companies in a particular group will also have to to have a variety of local compliance, you know, whether that's statutory reporting or whether that's tax compliance. And, and typically those accounts are prepared on a different basis. So when we're looking at a, at a kind of a global minimum tax, like under pillar two, then those at the moment should as much as possible draw only data that's that's available in the, the global accounting system. But we know that sometimes we are actually going to have to go and look at the local accounting systems. And since they're on a different accounting basis, then there will be inconsistencies and often they'll be they won't even talk to each other. So let's move on to the topic of the hour. Uh, it seems like what's in the tax zeitgeist right now is this talk about the efforts that are going on at the OECD and then the most recent effort um, at the UN. As we know, 125 countries voted to pass a resolution to create a framework convention on international tax cooperation. The major developed countries and many European countries in the UK voted against it. And following that development, Matthias Corman, the Secretary General of the OECD, released a statement that the OECD is going to continue its work on the global tax deal. And so I wonder, one, what is your general reaction to this? And then we could potentially get into how this might muddy the waters for international tax negotiations going forward. Yeah, thanks, Lauren. I mean, as you say, this is uh, this is what uh, many people are focused on at the moment, the possibility that we can have a new, as you say, framework convention uh, at the UN on tax that would be in addition to, and some people might say in competition with, uh, the OECD model is uh, a matter of, of, of great concern, I think, to, to, to businesses and certainly to business at OECD. You know, it is unsettling and it's clear that, uh, as you say, uh, the Secretary General of the OECD has also come out uh, to with his own response uh, to this development of the resolution. Now, as I understand it, the resolution itself is not does not per se create the new framework convention, uh, but it creates a team or a working group that will come up with options for the for the possible creation of a uh, of a framework convention and that work will get kicked off and what will take place over, I think, more or less the next year. So that's a lot of work to do. Uh, and that's, uh, we don't know who yet, who's going to be on that group. We understand that it will be inclusive from a geographical perspective and uh, from a gender perspective. But, but as yet, I don't think that has been constituted and therefore we have very little to go on in terms of how they might approach that piece of work. Our main focus actually is in, in ensuring that the OECD two-pillar package gets implemented and gets implemented consistently. Uh, and that is over the next few months, which will be 
precisely the same time when the, this work is going forward in terms of potential designs for a new UN framework convention. So, so I think it's, con, it's of some concern to businesses that the, those people who are involved in those negotiations or in those discussions about a new framework convention are precisely the same people who need to be implementing the two pillar package. Uh, and we've already we already know that in many of those many countries there is limited capacity uh, for new policy development, and if that's uh, being thinly spread, then I think it's a risk uh, to all of us uh, in terms of the the the, the, co the complete and um, comprehensive and consistent implementation of two pillar package. Is it clear at all uh, what the UN might even do with this? framework convention, what topics they might tackle. To me, uh, just reading the resolution, there is mention of illicit financial flows and inclusivity. But I I guess I my, my question to you is, have you heard of any specific issues that they would like to tackle outside of what's been put in the resolution? No. I'm not aware of any specifics. I think it's, I think that you know, I, I think the main focus of that resolution is to create a you know a, a forum in which international tax policy can be designed in a way that that would feel more inclusive, you know, that, on which there would be uh, a different kind of dynamic than than that which takes place in the inclusive framework. That's a little bit of speculation, um, but but that would suggest to me that people have uh, not felt that the uh, their ability to influence the, the policy and inclusive framework made has been as, as great as it, as it could have been. That was Alan McLean, chair of the tax committee at Business at OECD, speaking with Lauren Bella. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-minute news and latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Vondana Mather is our editor. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. In a global tax landscape that changes by the day, it's what you don't know that can leave you exposed. At Bloomberg Tax, we provide market-leading intelligence and practical applications to help tax professionals work smarter, faster, and more accurately. Our solutions provide the insights you need for game-changing outcomes. To revolutionize your performance in real time, the difference is Bloomberg Tax. Learn more at pro.bloombergtax.com.